Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. A road trip with a young married couple on the verge of what? Tragedy? Reunion? A strangeness that lurks in the darkness. That's Hannah Petard's Listen to Me. In Visible Empire, we find it is a historical event, a catastrophe of unimaginable proportion that sets Hannah Petard in motion toward a novel of wealth, greed, race, and love. Hannah is here on the podcast to talk about these two novels, as well as her first two, Reunion and The Fates Will Find Their Way. The author of four novels, she's the associate professor in the University of Kentucky English Department and director of creative writing in the Master of Fine Arts program at the, the university and a consulting editor for Narrative Magazine. Hannah, welcome. Thank you. Lovely to be here. I got a, a vague hint from an essay that you wrote uh, about the sort of questions that you sometimes get at uh, <laughs> at book readings and signings. Uh, you, you call them innocuous. Uh, and our my conversation, my questions might fall right squarely in the middle of, uh, of some of those questions. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll start and ask you, first of all, uh, one of those uh, maybe not so innocuous questions. But just tell me about your background, uh, your, where you're from, your growing up, uh, what brought you here? Sure. Um, I'm from Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. And I was there until I was 13 or 14 years old. Um, and went to boarding school in Western Massachusetts, um, not because I was a bad kid. I was one of those that was so good I didn't even get a curfew. I used to lie to my friends and tell them what my curfew was. Um, didn't have one because I didn't go out. Uh, but I went to boarding school because um, my sister had gone and New England just seemed like this wonderful foreign world to a little girl from Atlanta. Um, and. So I went to Deerfield Academy in Massachusetts, loved it, loved the education, um, just a classic sort of um, geek from the beginning, really liked getting good grades, liked reading, liked being by myself. I was very introverted. My parents were my best friends. Um, and so that's where I'm from, Atlanta. Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't, uh, you, you always get that question sometimes when you talk about private schools or I don't know if you have you ever heard of like the question what what'd you do yeah. what, what what got you in trouble and got you sent away have you ever heard of uh, Riverside Military Academy in Gainesville Georgia oh gosh no is that where you went were That's you where sent I away went. oh what'd you do and uh, I didn't do well in algebra and I didn't Whoa. do well when I was there either <laughs> uh, so I mean that, that that that's as bad as uh, as I performed uh, it was in the classroom in math uh, and they thought that um, my parents thought that it would be a good idea that I got out of the public school system in Kentucky and um, that this was going to somewhere turn me around. And, you know, ironically, because we had a conversation uh, just a few days ago um, about this uh, project that we're underway here. This is a real divergent from anything that I had uh, to, to begin to talk to you about. But this is this is the truth um, that in uh in military school in this private school that's where i was introduced to robert penn warren and all the king's men 
Amazing. Through this amazing uh, teacher uh, of English that uh, required us to read uh, a lot of Southern uh, literature, being in, in Georgia. Uh, and um, anyway, that, that's, that's my story. But I always get the same thing when people look back a thousand years ago when I was uh, in school. And, what did you do wrong? What, you were, so you were a juvenile delinquent, were you? Absolutely. <laughs> no. Well, so, so many of, um, I'm, I'm hesitant to call them friends because I was not very social, but so many of the people who I knew at boarding school were there because um, they'd been bad. And uh, my brother, his senior year of high school, he was sent away from Westminster in Atlanta to Marine Military Academy in Texas. And it was because he was one of the, the bad kids. Um, and and yeah. it turned him around. I mean, yeah. he, I remember the first Christmas or holiday season that he came back from Marine Military Academy. And, and I thought, I have a new brother. This guy's nice to me. It's Uniform. amazing. Yeah. And, he had yeah. to cut his hair. We could sure. see his face. Um, but it, yeah. I think that was the beginning of what put him, you know, as a different trajectory. Uh-huh. His life yeah. was because of that. Yeah. So after, uh, after boarding school, after yep. private school, uh, you, did you go right into the University of Virginia? So no, that was, that was for grad school. Um, I, I did a, a funny little thing. I, I graduated a little bit early from high school and, um, and I, I enrolled in the University of Chicago. So I'd, I'd, by then I'd already been at boarding school and been away from home since I was 14. And I got to the University of Chicago, which at the time had this terrifically long orientation, a three-week orientation before classes started. Um, I have no idea if they still have such a thing now. But for me, the introvert that I was at the time, those three weeks were torture. I didn't enjoy any of the social activities that we were required to attend. Um, And I dropped out before classes even started. You know, I I was a person who, if I made friends at all, it was going to be in the classroom. So I left early. Um, But but again, classic geek that I was, I made sure that I had two other schools that would take me before I left. And so I had Johns Hopkins as a backup and also St. John's College in Annapolis, where my parents had moved. My mom had moved there by then. Um, to just outside Annapolis. And so I went home for a couple months. Um, and in January, having you know taken that time back home, um, I started, I enrolled at St. John's College, um, where I just had a terrific education and a terrific time, but it was really small. I made friends. It was, it was kind of cool. I made friends for the first time. Um, I was a little bit social. And uh, at the end of my sophomore year, I got this letter from the University of Chicago that said, do you want to come back? And I said, that sounds fun. Why not? So I transferred um, and I ended up doing my junior and senior there, senior year at Chicago. And I had always intended to go straight into a PhD program. Um, My mom was an English teacher as well. And so that was just always the plan in my head. And I finished at the University of Chicago and being in school again was the last thing I wanted. Um, So I took some time off did a lot of odd jobs, moved around a little bit, lived in Berkeley for a while, um, in Savannah for a long time. And then after about four years, had this sort of realization that I wanted to go back to school. And um, it was actually my mom who pointed out to me that I could get a a degree, an advanced degree in creative writing. I I had no idea that you could do that. Um, And I'd always been, I'd always thought of myself as a scholar and somebody who should 
have a PhD, even though I wasn't doing the work necessary to have that. I just, it was the image that I had for myself. And meanwhile, I was writing all of these short stories and um, my mom said, why don't you just apply? And so I did. And I uh, sort of foolishly, and I, I think a lot of first-time applicants to MFA programs do this, I applied only to the top five schools, um, having done no research, uh, uh, having no idea what kind of fiction I was writing or if it was even good enough. And obviously, I did not get in anywhere. And that was a real wake-up call. Um, and and I frankly, I think everyone should get rejected from an MFA program the first time they apply because it is such a difficult life to choose pursuing something creative that you've got to be prepared for rejection. And so for me, getting those rejection letters in the mail just made me want it more. Um, And I, I knew that I would keep applying as often as I needed to. I, w- I wasn't going to stop writing. It did not deter me. And so the second year I applied, I got in. Um, and UVA was my first choice. They were the last school to accept me. They accepted me on April April Fool's Day. Um, and it was, it was amazing. It changed my life. Were you, uh, t- tell me uh, the top five, if you remember all. Uh, At the time, um, th- it was silly that I even bothered applying to the Stegner at Stanford. I yeah. mean, really, most people who apply to that already have their MFA. It's not a requirement. Mm-hmm. Quite a few people do mm-hmm. get in without it. But I, I applied there. Yeah. I applied to Iowa. Applied to UVA mm-hmm. the first time. Didn't get in. Columbia. Um, and I can't remember what the fifth yeah, would have been, but yeah. those were those were the big four uh-huh. schools at the time that I was applying, and they certainly still have, sure. um, you know, the, 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 their leg- their legacies. Oh, um, sure. And and the and the, the next year I applied to those all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, I just also applied to middle of the road schools, uh-huh. backup schools, schools that might not have had the institution didn't have a reputation but there was somebody there yeah. whose writing i really admired mm-hmm. and i would want to work with I, I i did a lot more research um and wasn't just applying to the thing that you know i'd been told was the best mm-hmm. and I, I ended up at uva which at the time it was one of the best and I, I think of still as one of the best um but I ended up there because there were people there who I really wanted to work with. And it was in a place that seemed to me very livable in Charlottesville. Mm. Um, And it's a place that I ended up falling in love with. And I got to work with Ann Beattie, who remains just one of my closest mentors. And, you know, I think I can even call her a friend at this point. Mm. And she changed my writing. If I hadn't worked with her, I don't know that I would be the successful novelist that I am. Really? So, oh yeah, she made me eat my Wheaties. She was just was she um, so she was uh, she was tough. She oh, demanded yeah. rigor and 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 uh, she she called. I, I'm a very instinctive writer. Um, I don't always know what I'm doing, but often uh, it just works out. Um, and I think there are I think there are lots of writers who know what they're doing, um, but but mine is more instinct. I also can be very lazy and just let myself be instinctive and not push myself and just say, I mean, in the past, especially, I try not to do this anymore. Um, But I, I, it's easy to be lazy if you have an instinctive skill to tell a story. Um, And I think what Anne Beattie did was accuse me of being lazy, call it, call me out on it. And she just pushed for more, you know, why this, why that push, 
push this. This is not what you mean to be saying. Yes, this is um, this gets across an emotion, but it's not real. We're, you're telling us what to feel, and you're not you're not making us feel it. And I just I loved working with her. You mm-hmm. know, I think a lot of so many professors that I talk to, so many other teachers who I talk to, they look back at. There, there's there's a person in their life, a teacher, a friend, a mentor, who pushed them to be more than what they were comfortable being. And it's like, that's the reason that they're also a teacher or that they're also a professor. You're nodding your head like you're thinking of somebody oh, yeah. who... Yeah. Because I think the MFA experience um, is so rich and so wonderful. And um, uh, I told you... Uh, and some of the listeners know that I went to Spalding, mm-hmm. and uh, it was life-changing for me. And uh, the people that I'm thinking of uh, were so supportive yet tough, uh, so demanding yet understanding. And um, I, I, one of the questions that I thought maybe we would we would raise, um, that I would raise, and and why not now, is. Uh, there was a a debate uh, uh, just a few years ago. Maybe maybe it's still going on. I, I, I was quite frankly, I was I was reading a lot more um, about. Uh, uh, there seemed to be a, a, a sort of a stream of of criticism about MFA programs. NYC versus MFA. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, I I love to talk about this. Um, I have no problem with writers who are able to write without an MFA, I think that's terrific. To me, it seems an unnecessary exercise to put down um, to put down the process of the MFA or, or the possibility of the MFA because there's just, there's no reason to pick one or to say that one is better. Um, what, what I think the MFA experience can do when it's working correctly. It can provide a young writer, an aspiring writer, time and space to write. Mm-hmm. And if they're really lucky, they also find a cohort that some of whom stay with them for the rest of their lives as readers. I don't see any problem with that. And then if they're really, really lucky, like I was, um, they find a mentor who is always in the back of their mind whenever they're sitting down to write. They're thinking, even if she never reads it, I want to impress Anne with this. Um, I want Anne, if she picks this up, to think, that's my girl. Mm -hmm. She worked hard on this. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't see what's wrong with that in the same way that I don't see what's wrong with somebody who drops out of high school, goes to New York or Chicago or LA, um, gets a job waiting tables, I waited tables forever after um, grad school while I wrote, uh, and and they do it that way, and they they you know wait tables at night and they write during the day, and um, if they're if they're lucky, they find a community of people who maybe have gone to MFA, maybe programs, maybe haven't, um, and they're reading each other's work, or maybe they're doing it all by themselves. Um, I have no problem with that. I, I just I think it's silly yeah. to to dismiss out of hand the MFA. Are there are there MFA programs that exist? It seems simply to take 
um, a student's money. Absolutely. And is that a problem? Yeah, it is. And that's why you need to do research. Um, And I think that I think that there is also the accusation that that people are trained in in some MFA programs to write the quote unquote workshop story, Mm -hmm. um, the sort of soulless mimic story uh, that takes all of the key mm-hmm. points of, you know, a better, you know, already published story and, you know, just recreates it. Um, yeah, I'm sure yeah. that happens too. But it, Do you think it's unique that, uh, I mean, how many other states are you familiar with? Uh, we have four or five MFA programs uh, here in Kentucky, and and, and they're all different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm, I'm most familiar with uh, Murray State University's program uh, after Spalding's program, um, uh, just because, uh, and proudly so, they, they, they published something in their uh, literary uh, journal uh, mm-hmm. of mine. Uh, that was the first time I'd, I'd opened up uh, anything and seen my name and, and, and something that I'd written, and it was just the... It's a great experience. Oh my gosh, it's just right? the proudest moment of, of someone's life. Uh, Gush, gush. Um, so, how many? St- uh, d- d- uh, at one time, again during this debate, there it seemed to be an MFA program in every corner. And uh, but I don't know if if a state had five, four or five programs like Kentucky, or is that is that kind of re- normal? I mean, do, do do a lot of schools offer an MFA now? I th- I think that there are a lot of yeah. MFA programs. Uh-huh. It does seem to be a, yeah. a glutted. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. system in some ways but i would i would assume that most states have more than 5 because oh. there are hundreds and hundreds mm-hmm. of programs so there have to be more yeah. than 5 yeah. in most states i think to account for how many programs there are so you are now uh the the head of uh the MFA program uh, the head of creative writing now mm-hmm. is that uh, at the um, uh, MFA program at the university mm-hmm. uh so you're in charge well I am director. Uh, I answer a lot of emails. Um, I think that we run a pretty um, democratic ship over there. I Julia Johnson was the one who got the program off the ground. She's also a UVA graduate, um, a graduate of that program, and and she, you know, got the structure in place that I largely follow. Um, I w- yes, I am director. I don't think I don't <laughs> well, think I'm the in reason charge. I, the, well, okay, all right. Um, but my question is: um, in, in your uh, obviously, you wanted to do this, or you wouldn't be doing it. Sure. Um, so, uh, is it in the mold of of the UVA program or of other programs that you've read about? I mean, wh- what do you want the MFA program, which is Relatively, fairly uh, new. I think it's only... Yeah, it's we're in our third and a half year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So our fourth year. Um, so wh- what do you want it to be? What what kind of what kind of writer do you want to attract? Uh, sure. Well, I'm, I'm familiar with where I've gone, right? I'm familiar with UVA. Um, that's what I am most intimately familiar with. But I know about other programs. I think certainly Julia began the this program in the image of UVA. And I certainly have continued that image and, you know, moved, moved forward with what she set into place. Um, I really, but I also think we're doing something special here. I mean, I, I believe in the mentor mentee, um, 
uh, relationship. Sure. I, I think that we bring to campus students who we think will be in a classroom well together that will learn from one another as much as they're learning from us. I mean, we're really particular about the cohort that we bring to campus. It's, it's a small program. And what we hope when we're looking at applicants, um, we hope that we're choosing people who will push one another, inspire one another, that they're bringing different experiences and different backgrounds to the classroom. And, and we, as the workshop leaders, sort of, we sit at the helm of the table, but um, we're 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 guiding the conversation. We're not um, we're not dominating the mm-hmm. conversation, and and I think you know we we've got we've got some really cool stuff. Eric Reese teaches this craft class that um, our students just adore, and. Um, and I, th- you know, f- I think it's a reason to come to this program is his craft class, frankly. Uh, and and the students, you know, it's very similar to how I talk about Ann Beattie. Um, I was so jealous when my fiction students were coming from his cl- craft class, and they were saying, "I've never worked harder. Uh, I've never worked harder on a project or for a teacher. I love it." Mm. Um, and I thought, ah, that's that's what I want. Mm. And and but I I love that I have a colleague who my students say that about um that's very inspiring to me and it makes me want to be a better teacher um and i also again i think it's a reason to come to this program i think you know we're, we're i love that we're in lexington i love that we are not in new york i love that we're not in chicago or la i think that in that way it's it's very unique and i like the idea of frankly you know as much as i love a local student what i like about a student who comes from a place that's different than Lexington is that they will be seeing new things. Mm -hmm. And when you see new things, you think differently Mm -hmm. and you think newly. Um, And that's really important when you're writing to expose yourself to, to new experiences and new places and new ways of encountering the world. You, um, as a, an English teacher mother, you, you were always a, a reader as a young child. And, and, and when did you begin to think, when did you begin to write and begin to think you, you could be a, a writer? That's a, so I did, I, I was a reader. Um, it took me a minute to really love it. And partly because my older brother and sister were such fast readers and avid readers. And my mom was a reader um, that I felt that I couldn't quite keep up. Um, and sometimes I felt pressure to be a reader. And I'm a very, very slow reader. Um, I was I was always fascinated once I did truly start to love it. And it wasn't simply something that I did because I felt pressured by my family. Um, I always paid so much attention to the sentence level. Um, I could just sit and read the same sentence over and over and over again, trying to trying to figure out why a certain verb had been used or why a certain phrase, um, you know, where a comma had gone. And I think that attention to the line level um, is what was one of my gateways to becoming a writer. You know, I, I think there are plenty of writers who aren't interested in the sentence level. The sentences are just a vehicle to get to, you know, to tell the big story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and certainly in the past, I am 
I am a writer who has been too bogged down by mm -hmm. the sentences, and I sacrifice content for style, which is something that I was told early and often. And mm -hmm. I think about it in the back of my mind. I tell my mm -hmm. students that all the time now. Um, and I love to be able to uh, tell them what has been told to me. You're sacrificing content for style. Mm -hmm. Just tell me a story. Yeah. Stop focusing on the words, mm -hmm. um, even though I, I do this myself. Mm -hmm. But um, I started, I started writing at a pretty young age, stories and really, really awful poems, um, <laughs> awful stories too, but the poetry was just phenomenally bad. Um, but I did that early on, again, just incredibly introverted um, and didn't have many friends. And so I spent a lot of time making up stories and telling myself stories and just imagining friends instead. And then I got kind of serious about it and college but didn't share my story I didn't take any creative writing uh, classes in college um, didn't really share my work with anybody um, and then after after college before grad school I sent a couple stories off to magazines here and there and I got I got some really promising rejections that, <laughs> and that that was one of the reasons when my mom did suggest um, grad school was one of the reasons why I thought I had a fighting chance of getting in the um, you've been relatively um, you've been on a fast track. Uh, I mean, 2012, uh, your first novel, your first published novel. After, I'm sure there were essays uh, and and short stories before. There were a lot of stories. Yeah, yeah. There, were, there were a handful of stories that I was publishing. Yeah. And then, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, uh, 2014, 15, and 18. Um, it's you're close. That, yeah. It's 2011 was the first book, um, and then it went 2011, 2014, okay. 2016, 2018. Yeah. yeah. Did you feel like? Um, did you feel compelled uh, that in order to progress in your career and in your in your your teaching uh, prof profession and and the likelihood or the uh, hope that maybe someday you would be in an MFA program and, and, and that that's all worked out now that you it was sort of publish or perish or or were these stories that were just crying uh, to be put down and, and read widely by uh, your audience you know the only the only book that felt like a compulsion in a not good way the only book that felt um where I felt as though I was writing it as a mercenary or, or because not, not so much for a career, but to prove something, um, was reunion. And, and that's the, you know, the dreaded sophomore novel. Um, mm. there were between the fates will find their way, the debut and reunion. I wrote two, possibly three books that were turned down by, by my editor at the time. Um, I think two of which weren't even shown to my editor by my agent and then one of which was um, and she turned it down and that that rejection and those years when I was writing those books um, it felt awful and I, I wasn't writing those books because I needed a the second novel but by the time three had been turned down um, I did just need to have a second book um, and so reunion was sort of written out of a different kind of desperation but not not for not for career mm -hmm. advancement. Um, mm -hmm. No, I wrote I wrote the fates will find their way because um, I had been thinking about nostalgia and the way people look back 
at the past and romanticize the past, mm-hmm. even while refusing to engage in the present. And I would, I just, it, that was that was something that I'd been observing since high school, since I was a little girl watching my, my parents go through a, a terrible divorce. It was just, it was so impressive to me and impressive in a really heartbreaking way that people could could romanticize the past not live in the present and then a week later romanticize the present that they hadn't even been enjoying and i wondered where where do you stop and enjoy things and where do you really embrace life and so in writing the story the fates will find their way it's about this group of boys that we follow into adulthood into you know their mid 40s and they never embrace what they have they they spend their entire lives their entire half lives you know 40 is half mm-hmm. a life mm-hmm. um and but they they spend those first 40 years obsessing about something that happened in high school and refusing to to see what they have or to see what the future holds or to really appreciate you know their their current mm-hmm. lives and and so writing that book was just a way of articulating um something that i'd been watching and to to capture it and to say this is an observation i have this mm-hmm. is a criticism that i have of it um this is something i never want to do in my own life i want to capture it put it down on paper mm-hmm. and then you know use it as a reminder to to never romanticize mm-hmm. the past um or if i do to not do that um, in a way that precludes me from living in the present. Mm-hmm. Where, where's the title come from? The title comes from, uh, it's, it's really funny. Um, St. John's every year uh, used to send out a calendar with quotes. Um, and the full quote is from, from the calendar that they sent out. It's Virgil. It was, um, hmm. oh, now I can't even remember the whole quote. Um, but from a calendar, and from, and, and, a, from a calendar, and, and from Virgil, and uh, you can't go wrong with. And it, I, you know, it's from it was from a from a passage that I had read in college that um, I knew and loved, and uh, but had absolutely nothing to do with the book. And it arrived mid mid book, and I had been you know toying with a couple other titles, and I guess I liked the um, complete serendipity and ridiculousness yeah. of. But it, but it also works. Um, the the fates will find their way. Yeah, kind of works as a title for the book. You know, that's just a, another little digression here. Um, titles are so important, and I remember uh, well a lecture uh, one uh, time about how important they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's uh, sort of the first thing that people see in the bookstore or in the window, and it as well as the cover uh, mm-hmm. art and and what you you know and all of that. So because. Um, the Fates Will Find Their Way, Reunion, again, one word. Uh, Listen to me is really just a, a short title, too. Visible Empire, of course, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that I don't know if an, did an editor or somebody say, you know, lose, lose the long, uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's like uh, Fire and Fury, uh, the, the Trump White House and the era of the blah, 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 you know, it goes on and on and on. And, and you know, people don't retain all that. Right. Yeah. I've learned to let go of <laughs> titles. Um, my, my my stories, I titled every single story, and I really fell in love with the titles. Often, 
the title would be the thing that I wrote the story for. So very early on, titles were yeah. um, just of utmost importance and probably yeah. too much importance to yeah. me. Um, the Fates Will Find Their Way uh, was my title. And um, there was there was an auction for the book. And when I was talking to the editors, um, several of them asked about my willingness to part with the title. And I said, <laughs> yeah, I, c- I could do that. Um, at one yeah. point, it had been suggested that we call it just The Fates, um, which mm. I think I probably would have been fine with. But ultimately, it ended up being The Fates Will yeah. Find Their Way in a couple of the languages that it was translated into they they couldn't quite translate the passage um, from the Aeneid as accurately as they needed to, so they just scrapped the title altogether. Um, I think the German edition <laughs> is called something along the lines of Nora Lindell and the Boys Who Missed Her. Um, and then yeah. There's, yeah, there's there's another edition that has something similar, like Nora Lindell and the Day She Went Missing. Um, so they just scrapped it all together. Yeah, fine. sort of dumbed it down, didn't they? Yeah. Um, or simplified it or whatever. Simpl- Those Germans, you know. Yeah, it's more straightforward. Yeah. Um, but uh, Reunion came from a passage, a Cheever, the short story Reunion by Cheever, which is a story oh, yeah. that I love and... Um, it was it was in the back of my mind yeah. that story uh, that 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 book was sort of in conversation with that story and I, I'm I'm very much a believer of art being in conversation with art that's yeah. come before and so um, reunion was also my title we we toyed around with some other titles in retrospect I wonder if I'd be happy if I'd titled it something else um, listen to me was not my original title the original title was auto. A-U-T-O. Um, and I loved that idea. Uh, but the publishing house and my editor and my agent and just about everybody um, in the world hated it. And so we we went through about, I, I sent a list of 20 titles, all of which came from quotations that I thought were relevant to, to the story. And we settled on Listen to Me, which actually turns out to be a, a great title for the book and i'm i'm glad it's called yeah. listen to me um and visible empire is, which is going to uh, be out soon that comes out in june yeah, yeah visible empire yeah. comes out in june that was another conversation piece um between between me and my editor and the president of houghton mifflin and um i'm really really happy with with the title it was it was there was never the right title for that book. I, I toyed with a bunch of different ones, and um, it was it was an arduous process getting there. But it I think it makes so much sense for for the book and for the story. Uh, talk a little bit about um, that. that uh, Visible Empire is based on a true event. Yes. So so there had to be some sort of. Uh, uh, recognition of that, whether you were there at the time, uh, you weren't even born. No, then. I wasn't born. No. So yeah. in, in 1962, mm-hmm. in France, a plane that was carrying more than 100 of Atlanta's wealthiest art patrons crashed on takeoff. And overnight, the city changed. Um, but this is 1962 when it's happening, ni- 1968. And so um, many of the sexual and racial revolutions that were in full swing by 1968, you know, they're not yet happening. They're they're on the horizon. And so 1962 is just such an interesting time in Atlanta um, for more than 100 wealthy white people to die. And um, you've got Mayor Ivan Allen at the, after the event occurs saying that this, 
not not the treatment of African Americans in Atlanta, not the wide scale like the legalized racism, um, but this event killing 131 people. Um, this is Atlanta's greatest tragedy. And on the other hand, you've got Malcolm X out in California saying, no, in fact, it's the work of God, and we're going to ask him to do it again. And so those two, the, the book begins with those two epigraphs and, and two others as well. Um, but those competing sort of uh, ways of looking at the story and that event were why I wanted to, to write this story, to sort of explore um, just the different dynamics and the the different tensions that were going on at this really fascinating time in history. Was it, um, did you like the process of doing the research and learning about the, uh, if you're going to learn about a catastrophe, you know, a plane crash? I mean, was that, had you done that in any of your previous writing, whether or not it ended up in, uh, no, in, in a novel no, or not? There, no, there was no research really for, for the here and there looking up um, yeah. silly little facts. But the, the I did the research for this book here um, while I was living in Lexington. And um, I did enjoy it. I enjoyed the process because even on days when I wasn't writing, I felt like I was working. Um but I also, you know, what I love about writing is writing. It's, it's, it is both the worst experience in the world to sit down alone and try to write and also the most satisfying. Um, it's, it's where I have experienced my greatest highs and lows in life. Um, but there is nothing better than finishing a page or a sentence or a chapter and rereading it and thinking, where did wow. this come from? How mm-hmm. did I do this? Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So how do you fit all this in? I mean, you're you're. Um, there's so many people uh, that write full time. Um, you have a you have a day job. I mean, you mm-hmm. you direct a program, and you're in the English department, and you're, you know, you have to get up and go to class every day and all of that. How do you, when, when do you write? Well, right now, um, right now is one of the periods in my life when I am not actively writing. Um, I am not one of those writers who wakes up, eats a bagel, drinks five cups of coffee, and then sits down for an eight hour stretch. I've never been able to do that. I can write for eight hours and I often do, but never with that kind of regularity. Um, I am somebody who very much needs to be out in the world, be experiencing things, being paying attention to things, being paying, awful, Mm. Um, paying attention to things, writing things down, observing things, experiencing things. And And then there's a moment when I realize that it's all sort of inside kicking and screaming and it wants to get out. Um, you know, I'm, I'm never not thinking about a bigger story. Right now I'm thinking mm-hmm. about a bigger story, um, but I'm not writing it down yet. I'm not, I'm not quite there Do you yet. journal um, or write down anything, ideas or thoughts? or? So I, I make a lot of lists. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a list maker. It's very important to me at the end of the day to cross things off and then yeah. write them again, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially if I haven't done them. Yeah. Um, I love making lists. And so I always have a notebook where there are lists and that's where um, mm-hmm. I also write down just things that are overheard, an idea I might have. Um, I find the idea 
I find the notion of journaling or make keeping a diary really intimidating. I, I used to keep a diary when I was a little girl and I was always lying in, in my diary because there was <laughs> there was always the assumption or I think hope that someone would find it. And so I needed the things that I was chronicling to be more interesting than my actual life. So the, the there's this real um, <laughs> interesting relationship that I have with, so I can't call it journaling or diarying because then yeah. I would be lying. Yeah. Um, and so I keep my list and in, it, it's, it's the only way that I can without being intimidated um, it's the way that I can write down yeah. notes. And, and I go back and look and find things. Um, I often, you know, whenever I talk to my dad, I have my, my, my notebook very close to me because he is the provider of some of the most amazing sound bites. He is, he is in every novel. There, there is a quote really? by him in every novel. He'll just say the damnedest things. Well, um, and he was a, was he, no, what did he do? Was he a lawyer? No, 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 um, no, no, no. He, he, uh, he's still alive. Um, he lives, he lives in Asheville now. Um, and he is, he, he used to tell the most amazing stories about Atlanta and especially the time just after the oh. crash in Atlanta. But he owned, um, a machinery shop in, in Atlanta for, for many years. And, um, I just, now he, I can't really describe what he does. He's sort of a jack of all trades. He, he just. What a great relationship. I know he. He's so honored by what accomplishments you have made and will make, and he must be very, very proud of you. He is a big fan. My dad is a big <laughs> fan. Yeah, no, he's great. That's great. Uh, journaling, and then we'll wrap up. But I, I, I'm. Um, uh, it was told to me many, many years ago, and I don't do it either. Um, you know, if you want to write, journal. You know, write down everything. Uh, write down your thoughts. Uh, keep a journal. Uh, uh, our friend Richard Taylor, who I revere and and think so much of, mm-hmm. um, just did the podcast uh, with us uh, a few weeks ago. E- ever since I've known him in Kentucky, when when I came back here and started uh, doing some other things and running ran into Richard, he 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 keeps a journal all the time. I mean, he can be, and and I've always you know, and I, I meant to ask him on the podcast if he's always writing. Uh, uh, poetry, or is he just writing down phrases? I mean, he can be. Um, I, I've seen him many times in a in a lecture or a, uh, a group where he just makes little notes and things. And uh, uh, I've always uh, sort of been curious about what those things are. He can be in a coffee shop in conversation, and he just kind of opens up and just jots down a. Oh, a my phrase family or two. hates it. I'll I'll do it at, <laughs> at the dinner table when we're all together, yeah. and and everyone will stop talking and just look at me, and they'll say, "What'd you write down? Who'd, yeah. who'd you steal from? Yeah. What'd, you, what'd you hear?" And I'm like, "Nothing, nothing." Yeah. Everybody, go back to my yeah. business. Mind well, you business. know what? Darn it, that's a heck of a lot better than checking your phone uh, <laughs> or writing on your phone or you, you know or doing something on. Instagram. Um, but anyway, well, Hannah, it's been delightful and, um, we wish you the best, um, with visible empire. I know it's going to be huge and, and, uh, you've done so well here. You're, you're sort of, uh, as I was, um, uh, talking with Brooke Raby, our project manager mm-hmm. of our Kentucky book fair and, and, uh, head of our Kentucky reads project that, that you're sort of in this, um, if you will, second generation of, of, of this rich literary tradition, which almost sounds trite, but it's true. I mean, 
for so long, um, we've looked up to Wendell and to Bobby Ann and, and to Richard and to Jane and to, you know. And we li- still do. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, uh, I, don't, I don't take it as trade. I take it as a compliment. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, and then you're here now. I just finished uh, really meeting and getting to know uh, David King. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. That's just such an amazing personal story uh, and how successful he's been and and uh, so there, uh, there's so many others, and uh, all over the state. So it, it's terrific to have you so uh, involved and at the university. And uh, we wish you the best. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. SoundCloud.